many of you have read the scripture already with the liturgy, but we're going to read it again. Our passage again is Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is God's word that we've just read. It really is. Let's, let's pray as we jump into this text. Our Father, you order the movement of the cosmos, of the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, and you also order the steps of, of things as tiny as ants. I pray that you would order my words, and may they be used even in this unique arrangement uh, by your Spirit to produce fruit for your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, if you recall, we looked at Psalm 1, where we considered what it means to be happy. And we said, it really, to be happy, you need to have two things happen. You need to get your roots in a couple of different things. One, the Word. And two, Jesus, right? The, the streams of water. The, rib, the living water that Jesus provides. If you can get your roots in those two things, you'll be happy, you'll be blessed, you'll be satisfied. Now, I could see someone thinking, well, you know, do I really want to get my roots in this Word of God and in His Son, Jesus, if all of this suffering is going on? In light of coronavirus? Like, is this the God who's sort of responsible for this? Do I, do I want my roots in that God? Do I want my roots 
And, uh, and it may not be the coronavirus. Maybe it's war. Maybe it's famine. Maybe it's a family crisis that you're facing. Maybe it's a personal crisis. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Sooner or later, suffering will sweep into your life and cause you to wonder if this God is really where I want to stake my life in. You know, it's, it's tempting. You, you can almost think of him like, sort of like a, an overwhelmed nursery care worker. Is that what God is like? like he's, he means well, but he's got dirty diapers in different corners of the room. There's little turf skirmishes taking place in a few pockets of the nursery. Um, there's a couple kids screaming and crying for snacks. And he's just running around. The nursery worker's just running around trying to keep everything in order and keep, keep the peace. And that's how God sort of orders and manages the universe. That he sees, you know, coronavirus pops up and he's like, how do I I deal with that? He means well. He's good. He just can't quite manage it all. There's too much going on. Or maybe we think of God as the negligent nursery care worker who's just sort of sitting back in their chair, scrolling through their Facebook feed. They know all this stuff's going on in the nursery. They just don't care. They're just aloof. We have an advantage as Christians because our claim, the claim of Christ, is that God made himself known to us in the word, made flesh. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if we want to know what God is like, we look no further to his son Jesus. And so looking specifically on this Palm Sunday, at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it's revealing. It shows us something of of this God. And I want us to consider three things from this text. One, the king's control, the king's care, and the king's call. So the king's control, care, and call. First, let's consider the king's control. Look at verse 30. Jesus tells two of his disciples this. Go into the village. When you get there, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say this. The Lord has need of it. Now, we could easily kind of gloss over this, but but let me try to put this in modern terms. Let us say that uh, someone tells you, gives you very specific instructions, and says, I want you to go to... Oklahoma City, and and by the way, it is the day of the Oklahoma City Marathon, right? Jerusalem is a hustle and bustle right now. There are more people descending upon Jerusalem than normal. It's, It's a busy time. And in the midst of all of that, you're told, go into Oklahoma City. At 10th and Broadway, there's a coffee shop. Outside of the coffee shop is a red Toyota Corolla. I want you to get into that car. It has zero miles on it. The keys will be in the car. You're going you're gonna to get into it. Bring it to me. If the owner of the car says, hey, what are you doing with my car? Tell them the Lord has need of it and you'll be on your way. Do you see the, the control that Jesus has over this whole situation? The understanding that he has over all of the instructions that he's giving? He knows what's going on. And that's what Jesus is is demonstrating that he's in charge. Like a good king, he's in charge. This Passion Week, 
that's about to begin, the next few days that unfold, are going to get very chaotic. Things are going to feel as though they are out of control. And Jesus is demonstrating this is all part of the plan. When when Jesus is arrested and put on trial, all of his disciples are going to flee, abandon him in that moment. And even Peter, as as we well know, betrays him in the midst of this. And Jesus is saying, look, it's going to feel wildly out of control. And even though it feels as though things are about to spiral, I'm still in charge. I'm in control, right? This is an appointment that I've had since before God called your father, Abraham. And he's still in control today. Pastor Tim Keller, he's a pastor in our denomination. He's, he's, he's a pastor in New York City, Manhattan. He's written lots of books. Um, he, he, I've heard him tell his congregation, you know, the reason that you are here is because I'm, I decided to enter ministry through the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination that likes to plant churches. And the only reason I'm Presbyterian is because of my final semester at Gordon-Conwell Seminary where I took a class by, by a professor that persuaded me of Presbyterianism. And the only reason that class even happened is because of a prayer meeting. You see, a week before the class started, they could, the seminary could not get this professor from the United Kingdom a visa to make it over to the U.S. And so the academic dean in the middle of this prayer meeting said, I could use prayer. I have, I'm, I've got two classes that are coming up this semester, and I can't get the professor over to teach them. I'm afraid I'm going to have to cancel them. And it just so happens that the son of the sitting president of the United States of America, Gerald Ford, was in that prayer meeting. He was a student at the seminary. And he raised his hand. He said, I, I know a guy. I think I can help. So he makes a phone call. The visa is obtained. Now, the only reason all of that happens is because Gerald Ford is president. And the only reason Gerald Ford is president, he's not going to get voted in, is because of the resignation of Richard Nixon. And the only reason Richard Nixon resigned as president was because of the Watergate scandal. Well, how did we learn about the Watergate scandal? Well, we figured that out because the individuals that were bugging the lines in the Democratic offices, when they left, just happened to leave the door conspicuously open so that the night security guard, Frank Wills, saw it, entered into that room, and saw that there had been interference and the whole thing was exposed. So why is Tim Keller the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church? Because the people that bugged the Democratic offices left that door just to crack open. Now we could look, we could look at uh, all, any, any event in your life and see a series of connected uh, events that all led up to that moment, whether big or small. And here's the promise that, that God makes to us, even today, right? in Romans chapter 8. That all things, for, for Christ's people, all things are working for His good. And we have a king that is orchestrating. The same king that orchestrated the, the, the getting of this, cult, of this cult is orchestrating all of our lives for His good purposes. You don't doubt God's...
If you doubt his, his goodness, like you're like, that's, actually, that's the problem. It's this God that's in control. And I don't like the way he's controlling the universe. I don't like what I'm seeing. Well, let's consider point number two, the king's care. The king's care. And the clue is given in this mount that he selects. It's a donkey, a humble beast. And the crowds get it. They get that something very important is taking place. You see, um, the, Israel is an, is an impressed uh, people. For 700 years, they have been under some type of oppression. And they've had this hope, this promise of a Messiah who would deliver them from their oppressors. And so they, um, they, they know the promises. They've been reflecting upon Zechariah 9.9, the verse that we read as the call to worship, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in verse 8 of Zechariah, it says, this is the one that will stop the oppressor. Do you see the significance of this? This is the moment that Israel has been waiting for. And unmistakably, this is it. So what do the people do? Verse 36, they throw their cloaks down. Now, one's cloak was important. You think of uh, Joseph... Jacob, his father, Israel, gave him a, a cloak, um, and, and, and that became a source of envy and problems for him, especially as it relates to his brothers. Now, his brothers weren't just jealous at Joseph because he had this new chic cloak. They, they realized that bound up in that cloak was status and inheritance and an identity, and that's what was bound up in, in these cloaks. They weren't just coverings. They, they had immense importance. And as they are throwing these things down, these cloaks down before the king, as they're rolling out the red carpet, as Jesus comes in, they're not just throwing their threads down. They're throwing uh, their very lives before the king. And that's what the king demands. Now notice, no one is tepid. There's, there's two types of people in the crowd. There's those that are they're throwing their very lives before the king by throwing their cloaks down. And then there's another group huddled together, carefully scheming and plotting how they're going to kill this king. The Pharisees, are not, they're not quite ready to make their move on his life. And so they tell Jesus, Jesus, rebuke these people. This is embarrassing. For this, this is inappropriate behavior. And what does Jesus reply? He says, look, if they were silent, creation, dead stones would cry out in worship. Because, why? Because he's the king. And creation knows it. Right? This has been demonstrated throughout the Gospels. What happens when Jesus says to the storm, stop? It listens. It obeys because, because creation knows that Christ is king. It recognizes the voice that created it. 
What happens when you have a, a legion of demons uh, possessing this man? He's out of control. He's ripping chains. Uh, he, Jesus, and then when Jesus arrives, the demoniac runs up to him like an obedient golden retriever and bows before him, uh, submitting before him. And Jesus says, leave. And they leave. When things are broken... Bones are broken. Eyeballs don't work. Jesus says, be fixed. And the things come together. They're fixed. He is king. And creation knows it. And yet, the individuals that should have known, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders that have been preparing and prepping and waiting for this Messiah, not only do they miss it, but they're vehemently opposed to Him. But even the crowds don't quite understand. The parable of the sower. This is sort of a lived example of the parable of the sower. Uh, Because this is like the seed that falls on stone and it sprouts quickly. It sprouts. But uh, there's no no life to it. It's not connected to the soil. And so it quickly withers and dies. Right? That seed has joy but it doesn't have any joint. It's not connected to the life-giving soil. And so it is with this crowd, because in just a few days, many of these same folks will be crying out, crucify him. In fact, the whole scene ends very anticlimactically. In, in Mark's Gospel, it says that Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. He goes back to Bethany, for it was already late. And you think, Like, where's the triumph in all of this? Again, we got to consider the mount, the donkey. The donkey's a vehicle of peace. Uh, You could think of it this way. Um, Because you think, "Eh, that seems kind of silly for a king to be riding on a donkey. That's sort of drawing the short end of the stick at uh, at the horseback riding place. You know, a donkey, really? But it's a, a donkey was a vehicle of peace. And a king, in a peaceful time, in a peaceful setting, can mount a donkey. In a war, yes, mount a war horse. But but like the president of the United States, in peaceful times, in his own country, it would seem a little defensive for that king to come rolling in on a tank. That's what dictators do, right? Because their authority is tenuous, precarious. But not the president. At home, you ride a vehicle of peace, a Lincoln town car, whatever the vehicle is. Um, and so Jesus is riding this donkey. And back in Luke, when Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he says this. He, he enters his synagogue, his hometown synagogue, and he says, he reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now here's the thing. He stops mid-sentence and does not mention and to bring the day of the Lord's vengeance. You see, Israel had conflated what was to be a two-step arrival of Jesus into one. And what they did not realize, and what Luke is telling us in his Gospel is that the coming of Jesus would be a two-step process. 
The king would come, but he would first come mounted on a donkey, providing the opportunity for the the salvation of sinners. The Jews were expecting him to come on a war horse, but he came on a donkey, offering salvation to sinners by his death on the cross. And in this way, he was unlike any other king, because this king would lay down his cloak, right, his very life for us. He would be stripped naked so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. So here's the comfort that he brings. He's not coming on a war horse, but on a colt, on a donkey. He's not coming with a sword, but he's coming offering his very life, offering his salvation to all who believe. So the question for you this morning and for us this morning is this. Would you turn to him today? And find the forgiveness and the life that He offers. He brings not only mercy, but He also makes possible our adoption as God's children. And this is His goodness. He wants to love you and show you His salvation. Do you, do you see the King's tenderness toward you? Verse 41 ends with Jesus weeping. Right? It says that he's, he weeps over Jerusalem. He's in control, but he cares deeply because he knows the fate of Jerusalem. He knows the fate of the temple, and it causes him to weep. This is, this is the kind of king that we need. Selfless, caring, powerful, comforting. So let's now consider a final point, the king's call. The king's call. His call upon us is that we would walk the same road that He walked. Right? He tells us, take up your cross and follow Me. And this seems like foolishness to the world. Right? But for for us who believe, it's the wisdom and power of God. Because God promises that as we pour our lives out for our neighbor, He will fill us up. As we lay down our lives for our neighbor... And for even our enemy, he will, he will lift us up. He will exalt us um, with Christ. And it's, it's counterintuitive to pour ourselves out, to lay our lives down, to take up our cross. But here's the thing. Remember, remember who's calling us to do these things. It's the king. It's the king of the creation. It's the king of the cosmos, the king of the universe. In, in the book of Job, there is this moving dialogue that God has with Job, in the midst of Job's suffering. And what God says there, uh, Christ could just as well be saying to us, Christ the Creator, right? He's the one who measured, stretched the measuring line of, of creation. He's the one who caused the sun to split the night. He's the one who shut in the ocean with stone doors, determining its limits, He's the one who has silos filled with snow and hail. He's the one that lightning must consult before it strikes. He's the one that commands the eagle to build its nest on high. And he not only controls these things, but the author of Hebrews says that he sustains them by the power of his word. In other words, if Jesus stops speaking, 
we stop being. All of creation just vanishes. He is sustaining everything that we see. And this mighty king, he bears a cross. He pours himself out for his creation. You know, we didn't choose the name King's Cross just because we like Harry Potter. <laughs> we, we chose the name King's Cross because it aptly summarizes all of Scripture, right? It's not chaos and disorder. There is a king. He's in control. But he cares, right? Because he came bearing a cross. Do you see the beauty of the king who lays his life down for his people? Do you see the comfort that he brings? Would you let him ride into the very center of your life and take control and be Lord? Do you see how the, the, the road that he walked in the days ahead um, help us deal with this question of suffering, of coronavirus or the family crisis or the loss of a loved one or whatever it might be? John Stott reflected on this and, and said this, the, the pastor theologian. He said, I could never myself believe in God were it not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside His immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of His. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross that symbolizes divine suffering. He's writing in again. Remember, there's two, two comings. He's riding in again, and he will come back on a war horse. And the writer of, of Revelation describes he'll have a sword protruding from his mouth, and his eyes will be ablaze with fire. And, he, and, and all on that day will bow and worship him. But in the meantime, he's offering salvation to sinners, to those who repent to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have offered this opportunity at repentance, that you're withholding your judgment, you're, you are um, withholding your wrath so that we might have opportunity to repent and turn to you. You could, you could deal with evil in a flash, but in doing so, you would also have to deal with us as we confessed earlier in our confession of sin, 
But instead, you give us this opportunity, this window of of time to repent, to turn to you and receive all of the goodness of your love lavished upon us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.